Is this on? It reminds me of a time when I, uh, in a previous church, um, I jumped up and started preaching and had overlooked the fact that the choir was to sing. And I had all these eyes behind me just staring at me with this one particular person, the choir director, gazing at me like, what are you doing? So I wasn't going to budge till, till I was told that I should go ahead and... But I, I will go ahead and read the scripture, um, Luke 24. So if you want to find your way there to the Pew Bible, page 1256. I don't know if you've ever been talking and you notice there's someone in the corner of your eye looking at you. It's a weird feeling. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Luke 24, beginning in verse 1, we'll go down to verse 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Again, the spices, as we're reminded this morning earlier, was not for the purpose of any kind of food preparation, it was spices of, uh, of odor and of pleasant smell because of the stench of death uh, was soon to uh, appear. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near, near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. But Peter rose arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. And behold, two of them, I'm already, okay, that, so that was the end of the reading there, verse 12. I want to say, first of all, that one of the things about our church that I so appreciate is our, what's now getting to be a rather long tradition of meeting in this historic church building out on Middle Country Road every Easter Sunday, every Resurrection Sunday. And in that situation of being now, the building is 200 years old, 1818 uh, was the year that building was constructed. And to think about the fact that we are repeating what's been done there all those years since that time, singing of the same great uh, event of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, looking out of those windows and seeing tombstones 
uh, as many as you could possibly uh, imagine out there of all these people who have gone before us and just thinking about the wondrous, hope-filled message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We who are dead will one day be raised to life as Christ, who was once dead, has been raised to life. Let's pray together before we look into the passage that the Lord has for us today. Our Father, we thank you again for these wondrous, glorious truths, truths that confound the wise, truths that cause skeptics to marvel and to be astounded, uh, truths that are life-shaping, truths that are transforming in terms of taking us from a sense of despair and hopelessness into a sense of anticipation and true hope, looking to the future. How we thank you, our Father, that you have won a great victory in bringing Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you that we uh, who are gathered here today have opportunity now to think through the implications of that wondrous truth yet once again. And we pray that you would help them to be um, a reflection that is uh, still shaping and impacting our lives today. That we might once again be reminded that Jesus Christ is alive he is one with whom we have to do. One way or another, we are going to face, or we are facing, or we are dealing with Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can now reflect upon him as revealed from your word. We pray that you would open our, our ears and uh, open our hearts to what you have for us this day from the word of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Not long after the terrorist attacks that took place on September the 11th, 2011, 2001, excuse me, we began to see an interesting phrase that uh, appeared on the back windows of cars, sometimes on bumpers. It was the phrase that said, never forget. And then it had the number nine, and then I think it had like a, a, a slash, and then it had like the the Twin Towers, which, which became like an 11. Never forget 9-11. It's been almost 17 years since that day. A day of death, a day of destruction, and a day of courageous duty. And now another tower stands in that vicinity. Now there are memorials that have been dedicated far and wide. Now there are museums that have put on display a number of the artifacts that have been collected from the rubble. And I raise the question once again, what does it mean to never forget 9-11? What does it mean to remember 9-11? Remember those who died? Those who displayed bravery on that day? Those who are growing up without their mother or their father, without their son or daughter who died on that day. Those who stepped up voluntarily and enlisted to defend this country and who went to war, a war that sadly still goes on. 
Our memories of 9-11 obviously shape our present lives today. They, they, face, they, they shape our choices. They, they refine and have sort of changed our perspective on life. Certainly we are very much aware that evil is real. Life is precious. And vigilance is still essential. Now what I want to do this morning is I want us to think through about another day, another significant event, and I would challenge you that that event should not be ever forgotten as well. This is an event, however, that changed the world forever for good. This event altered human history by instilling hope. And yet this event, sadly, is overlooked by so many people. It is dismissed by some. It is celebrated by far too few. Of course, what historical event would be so memorable? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without exaggeration, this is the most dramatic, revolutionary, unequaled event in human history. This historical event from the life of Jesus Christ is too crucial, too important, too significant to overlook. Now, the people who do ignore it and who dismiss it and who forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, they are like ships. Ships that have an anchor chain that has now been disconnected and broken off. And they are now left to be tossing about in the tumult of the sea of subjective skepticism and of hopelessness and of despair. You see, from the start, from the first century, from the days right after this great, momentous, world-changing event, we have evidence that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was under attack. As a matter of fact, from the beginning, there were those who would circulate lies about Jesus' dead body that was supposedly stolen by his disciples, making it look like, making it seem as if Jesus was somehow raised from the dead. Other people soon thereafter began to modify the understanding of what we mean by resurrection, and they began to spiritualize it. So they didn't refer to a bodily resurrection, it was a, his spirit was raised. And these views, sadly enough, are even found and celebrated today. Any number of modern people have no hesitation in affirming that the account of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels was actually meant to convey that merely the Spirit of Jesus is alive today. But such views, I am convinced, violate this idea of never forget. The never forget principle that was set forth in the Scriptures. And rather than seeing it posted on the back of some car, it was first set forward among many, uh, he and a number of other people, 
by a man who wrote about it, encouraging it not to ever be forgotten or uh, to not to stop remembering it. It was by a person who saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It was by a man who included this phrase about remembering the resurrection of Christ in the last letter that he ever composed before he himself died. This man was, wrote this letter when he was in prison. And he was waiting his execution in Rome, in the first century. And what had he done? Why was he in this prison, a, a nasty, smelly, cold, disgusting prison? It's because of his insistence that the resurrection never be forgotten. This message about the resurrection of Christ sparked massive protests in various cities in which he made this declaration. It was his devotion to the cause of Christ that resulted in numerous imprisonments, numerous beatings, numerous riots that all of a sudden broke out in the midst of his proclaiming these truths. But I want us to listen again this morning to a small portion of this man's writing, the last surviving letter he wrote to a younger man charged with carrying on the work to which this man had begun all those years. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to make your way there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It's page 1415 in your pew Bible. Again, the last letter of the Apostle Paul, written to Timothy, and he says these words. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Now I want us to consider this morning three reasons why it is essential to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first is this. If Jesus' resurrection is forgotten, the gospel is undermined. It is ruined. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is forgotten, ignored, and dismissed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is irreparably damaged. The Bible loses its good news if Jesus Christ is still reduced down to dust in some grave. And this is so clearly explained, and I don't have time to fully unpack this, but I've done it many times, uh, on Resurrection Sundays, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives the blueprints for the gospel. And he shows that God's life-changing good news includes far more than the historical Jesus of Nazareth living an exemplary life. The gospel, according to Paul, is summarized, if you know the passage there in 1 Corinthians 15, in this way. Beginning in verse 3, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, if Jesus merely died and was not raised from the dead, 
the skyscraper of the gospel, in a sense, collapses to the ground. And Paul goes on to explain all of that destruction, all the things that fall apart, if that element of the gospel is not true. If you follow along again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12, which might be helpful to have in front of you at this point, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, Paul thinks through, if you take out from the gospel this one element about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the body of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what happens? He says, well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Jesus Christ has been raised, then all of our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we, as the apostles, proclaiming the gospel about Jesus Christ's resurrection, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ, Jesus Christ, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have died, who have fallen asleep in Christ, then they have perished. That's it. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, all of, we are of all men most to be pitied. There you see the... the crumbling to begin to tumble the one thing after another begins to happen if the if the resurrection of christ is not true if jesus is still a dead there's no good news in the gospel if jesus was not raised to life then no one else will be either no one else will have any assurance that they will ever find forgiveness for their sins Add to that, if Jesus' resurrection is dismissed and ignored and spiritualized away such that Jesus is still in a grave somewhere, then Jesus loses his qualifications to be Savior. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus cannot be trusted if, having made numerous predictions that he would be raised from the dead, that he would die and be crucified, and then he was actually raised from the dead. He said he was going to be raised from the dead. He made those predictions numerous times, and he loses all credibility if he remains dead in a grave somewhere. All of his promises, all of his assurances become worthless. We're left with a dead rabbi. We're left with an exemplary man we're left with a noble martyr. We're left with a prophet who died at the hands of those who rejected his message. And so the, the qualifications of Jesus being a Savior are absolutely destroyed if he remains dead in that grave. And if we disregard Jesus' resurrection, we lose one more convincing proof. The proof of Jesus' deity. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power. When? When was that? When he stilled the seas? Well, certainly then, yes. When he raised the dead? Yes. But most specifically and most explicitly by the resurrection 
of the dead, when he himself was raised from the dead. Bear in mind there have been a number of individuals who have appeared on the scene in history who have claimed to be God, or they have claimed to be God's messenger, they have claimed to be God's prophet, they have claimed to be God's Messiah. But all of these people died at some point, including Jesus of Nazareth. But never forget, Jesus, what sets him apart is that he was raised from the dead. When Christ rose from the dead, God announced that Jesus was not merely a man. He is, in fact, God in human flesh. He has power over the forces of death. And Jesus is uniquely God in human flesh. Now, if Jesus died only as a human example, if he was a person who showed us what love is by laying down his life merely as a kind and thoughtful person, a person who was a martyr, shall we say, then we are still in our sins. Then none of us can have hope of ever having sins forgiven. And this is so clear in Romans chapter 4 when we are instructed that the only basis upon which anybody can ever be declared not guilty before God is on the basis of faith alone. That is, not by works, not by becoming a better person, but by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the example is made of Abraham, who by faith alone, he points out that Abraham believed the promises of God, and he received the gift that was the righteousness of God given to him. The same is true of the basis upon which God deals with us. Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? It means that when he was raised up from the dead, the death that he paid on the cross to pay for our sins, the huge debt that we owed to God because we've broken his laws again and again and again, when he arose from the dead, God made it clear that that payment was adequate. That payment was sufficient. It was paid in full. Now suppose over time you made a number of unwise investment decisions. And after a period of time, those investments have really gone sour. And add to that, you have mortgaged your house to try to keep things going, and you have all sorts of debt built into the equation of your housing arrangement. And over time, you never thought that this would happen, but next thing you know, you lose your job. It's just a, a, a cascading of things going from bad to worse to worse. And now you find yourself being told that your house, according to your lender, is about ready to be going into foreclosure. And the thought of being homeless is looking you square in the face. But imagine if a rich uncle of yours... I never had one, by the way, but I understand that there are people like this, I'm told. A rich uncle of yours heard about your desperate situation, and he amazingly paid off your mortgage in full. Now, the mortgage, of course, is a form of debt that you sign 
early on saying, I'm responsible for this, and if I can't pay that, there's a lien against this house which says, you'll get the house if I stop paying on my portion on this. And so imagine the thought of having all the debt on that house all of a sudden is gone. The payment that was made by this uncle was totally sufficient. The result is you have full ownership of the home, which means you should receive from the lender the mortgage and the note with the clearly stamped on there canceled. The lender saying canceled. No longer do these apply any longer. And then that's supposed to be sent off to the uh, release of some sort of release document sending to the recorder of deeds. And they're saying, listen, there's nothing on this property anymore. It's owned outright. Well, that's sort of what Jesus' resurrection functions like in terms of our understanding of full forgiveness. We should never, ever forget Jesus' empty tomb. Because it is a once-for-all reminder that God has good news for you. He has good news for me. That any and every sinner who repents, any and every sinner who transfers his trust from trusting in oneself and one's ability to handle somehow repaying that debt, transfers his trust to the one who paid it for you in full in his death on the cross. We transfer our trust to Jesus. We can find ourselves, because of his payment, being declared that we are fully forgiven and free of all of that burden of debt we owe to God. Jesus paid our debt in full, and the resurrection is God's paid in full receipt. Don't forget it. Do not forget the resurrection of Christ. There's another aspect of this passage that Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, if we forget Jesus' resurrection, our perspective on life becomes distorted. It becomes distorted. Paul reminds Timothy that there's an ordering to life that you have to bear in mind, and the resurrection helps us keep that pattern and order in mind. It needs to be followed. We cannot escape this particular order that God has put and ordained, and that is this, that there are inevitable various forms of suffering in this world. This present world is indeed full of pain, full of suffering, full of loss. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2. Paul urges Timothy to be strong. Suffer hardship with me. What he's doing there in that passage is, Paul is saying, listen, this is what you are to expect now. You should expect that this life is not going to be utopia. Difficulties are going to happen in this life. And those difficulties don't just disappear if you come to Christ. If you become a Christian, your life does not become a dream world. As a matter of fact, it may become even more difficult as a Christian on many levels. As Paul found, as he spent so much time in jail, so many times 
escaping from riots, etc., etc. What he's saying here in this passage is you should expect the order in remembering Jesus Christ's resurrection that it, the order is there was a time of suffering that Christ endured first. There's the cross first, then the crown. And if we forget this pattern, this historical pattern, the order of Jesus' resurrection, which followed his sufferings and his death, it seems to me it's so easy to adopt false expectations. We expect life to be a lot easier than it really is. As a matter of fact, in this life, we should expect the fact that there is scorn that we must bear for the cause of Christ. There is suffering we're going to have to endure. There are enemies that we must forgive. There are losses that we must undergo. Some among you know what that suffering involves when you've had to let go of dear loved ones who have preceded you in death. You see, if we forget Jesus' resurrection, we're more likely to become cynical and we draw the conclusion that maybe that's all there is to life. It is just one endless form of suffering. And we tend to become rather cynical. We become jaded by all of the injustice of this world, and it is rampant. It is on every level. It is in every culture. We sometimes can become rather numbed by all the moral corruption in this world. My friend, don't forget, it was after Jesus' sufferings and after his death that God raised him from the dead. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. There is joy after the cross. You see, the biblical pattern now as you think about what are we to expect then? What's going to happen moving forward into the future? And thankfully, we are reminded through the resurrection of Christ that this present moment is not the final chapter. We don't take what we experience in this world and think, well, it's just going to be this way endlessly. Always with feelings of longing, remorse, Sadness, despair, crying, injustice. No. First comes self-denial, then comes glorification. And never forget, Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. There is coming a day, my friend, a day of radical reversal where things will be turned right side up for a change. A day when all of the gains, all the victories of Satan and the kingdom of darkness will finally and forever be overturned. Never forget. Never forget. These earthly, mortal bodies that over time become weaker and weaker and die in some form of dishonor, they will be raised imperishable, immortal, glorified, because Christ was raised 
from the dead. Never forget. Never forget. Thirdly, I want us to think this morning about if Jesus' resurrection is forgotten, our zeal for service will likely evaporate. Our zeal for service will likely evaporate. If Jesus Christ is still in a grave somewhere, why be concerned about doing whatever he commanded? Why bother? What's the big deal? Why be concerned about serving someone who still occupies a tomb? Why give our time? Why give our talents? Why give our resources to a cause of someone whose lifeless body still occupies a tomb somewhere? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world, my friend. If Jesus Christ is alive, we are assured that all of our service for Him, all of our commitment and sacrifice and investment into His kingdom, it is not meaningless. And that was Paul's point, of course, and he concluded the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what? That your toil is not in vain. Because Jesus' body was raised from the dead, all we do for Him has value. Our earthly service for Christ has an eternal payoff. You're not going to see it all in this world. You're not going to see the fruit of all of it in this world. But our labors for Christ will be rewarded by Him one day by the one who was Himself who overcame death. And now He is exalted to the place of the highest honor and the highest glory in all the universe. Think about Jesus' disciples for a moment. They professed their loyalty to Him when things were good. They saw some amazing things happen when they were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. But my friends, they were gripped by fear. They were gripped by the, 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 the thoughts of so much discouragement as their Messiah's dead body was taken down off that cross and wrapped with strips of cloth and laid in a tomb. Because the Gospel of John helps us see what was going on internally within those disciples when we read in his Gospel that these disciples on that evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead, they were, without knowing that, they're gathered in this upper room and they're in a room in which they have locked the door on the inside to keep out those they're afraid who might find them on the inside. They were afraid. They were afraid that they too might be killed by a mob and destroyed. And into this room, with the door locked, the risen Jesus Christ appears in his resurrection body. And he assures them that he truly is victorious over death. 
It's amazing. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, his followers at that point no longer needed to hide behind locked doors. They were so convinced. They were so incredibly changed and transformed because of that. They did begin to become bothered with the things of God, with the kingdom of Christ. And they became bold. The authorities arrested them. The followers of Jesus were thrown into locked jail cells. And why did they do that? Why were they locked up so many times? Why was Paul locked up? It was to prevent them from proclaiming the glories of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. And so here's Paul in 2 Timothy writing to Timothy from a prison cell, and he does so confidently. Because why? Because he knows Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ continues to work. Jesus Christ continues to take his word and apply it to the hearts of people, and the kingdom of God continues to be built. And he says in verse 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the word of God cannot be imprisoned. What's he saying there? He's saying that God's truth will prevail. He's saying that the word of God cannot be chained. No amount of intolerance, no amount of hatred, no amount of intellectual skepticism, no amount of hostility, no amount of moral relativism, no amount of tyrannical oppression in this world can control or restrict the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've thought about this. I've just, it has hit me once again, uh, and I, you can thank uh, Brother Walter Roeder and the ministry that he's uh, rendering in our men's ministry on Saturday mornings, but he has us in the book of Revelation. And I, if you'll just turn there just for a second, I want us to point out one thing here because I, I find it interesting that the last book of the Bible, which I believe was one of the last to be written from a chronological point of view, it was written probably around 90 A.D., maybe about 60 years after Jesus had died and raised, been raised from the dead. And in this book, much has happened uh, sorry, this book is given at a time when much has happened now to the church. It's as if the church had begun to spread. There were begun to be new churches here and there and everywhere. But it was very difficult. The church was being oppressed. The church was being persecuted. The church was having a difficult time. The message was not popular. It was that which was causing them much difficulty. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 9 of chapter 1 of Revelation, you'll notice that John introduces himself as the one who is the partaker of in the tribulation. He says, I'm, I'm caught up in this whole thing myself. The, the fact that I am now, as a follower of Jesus, I am in this tribulation and kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. That's the way he describes this movement of people who are holding on, declaring the truth about who Jesus really is. And he goes on to say that he was on an island there in Patmos. Let me assure you, that was no island resort. Don't think palm trees, don't think luxurious breezes blowing off there, don't think nice white sand and clear water. Think 
in exile. Think being uh, sent there as a prison that you would never ever come off the island and that you're there as a person who will die on that island. As a follower of Jesus, as the, as the empire of Rome tries to contain these people. And what is said to people like that in the midst of all this concern about where is this going to go? How much of the political forces can they, can they restrict what the church is doing? And look who is introduced here, as John says, as he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 13. He sees one like the Son of Man. And I don't have time to unpack what all he looks like, but it is so awesome and so inspiring and so all-glorious that John is down on his face. He, can, he just is filled with amazement and wonder and worship. And what does Jesus say? He says in verses 17 and 18, Don't be afraid. That was the obvious response of anyone who was a follower of Jesus. That what are they going to do to us next? He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and last. And what does he say then? The living one. And I was dead. And look. That's the way you ought to translate that. Not just behold. Behold sounds like behold. No, look. Just gaze your eyes at me. He says, look, I am alive forevermore. Instead of the question, why bother? The book of Revelation is saying to every follower of Jesus, I am willing to be bothered because Jesus is alive. Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and serve Christ even when it's not easy, convenient, or popular? Are you willing to take risks for Jesus Christ so that those who are outside of Christ may be rescued, may come to know the true and living God? Are you willing to, with boldness, Love the unlovely, to love your enemies, to love those who are the proponents of sexual revolution, who are exerting that revolution upon all of us, forcing it on us, whether we want it or not? Are you willing to love those who continue to make it more and more difficult, and I believe someday are going to make the reality such that would you continue to give if we lose our tax-exempt status? As a church? Are you willing to continue to proclaim Christ when we are maybe banished from safe zones and not allowed to speak our mind? It seems to me that all of these things, to me, are echoes of what Paul would say, remember, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Never forget. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have our minds challenged once again to ask ourselves, do we truly believe that Jesus Christ is alive? Lord, we cannot escape that question. We cannot escape that reality. If we deny it, 
then we are left with the position it says that we are unwilling to look at the evidence. We are foolish to think that someday we're going to escape being confronted with the true and living Savior of the world who was raised from the dead and is alive forevermore. So Lord, today, give us ears to hear whatever it is you are saying to our hearts today through your word. We pray, Father, for those who are here today who still are plagued with doubt, who do not have a strong sense of certainty and hopefulness regarding the future, who if they were to die tomorrow would be filled with all sorts of fear and despair and uncertainty that would overwhelm them. Father, I pray that today, if there's anyone here who has never yielded their hearts to Christ, who have never transferred their trust from themselves and their attempts to improve themselves to Christ, I pray, Lord, today they would turn from their sins and turn to Christ and trust Him as their personal Lord and Savior, confessing Him as their Master and serving Him in loyalty and in love. Father, I pray for those who have made such commitment. I pray that you would impress once again upon us the need to minister in a world that's going to become more difficult and more antithetical to the kingdom of Christ. Help us, we pray, to be faithful, to not let our zeal expire and evaporate. Help us, Lord, to continue to be zealous for Christ aware of what we are facing, but looking forward to what lies ahead and to keep our eyes upon Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. Lord, by your power, I pray that the Word of God would be unchained among us, that we would be gospel agents, people who love and people who proclaim Christ in a way that is powerfully impacting this area of your world. For your glory, we pray it, and for our good, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.